here we're having a little sit down with a group of people who are dead. We're going to talk with our good old friend Carl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, and that crazy lady who wrote Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand. We're going to ask them where we're at in the world, about the Industrial Revolution, and about the Information Age, about the sovereign individual, the digital nomad, about taxes, about lithium, about railroads, and about a train that I saw a picture of. So strap in for a little bit of this interesting little sandbox. Thanks for tuning in. Peace. I saw a picture of a 1930s train that got me kind of excited about a portion of history in the United States that I realized I didn't know much about, that I really want to learn more about, and gets me kind of excited about where we're headed right now, what it all means. Sometimes when I want to to get myself in a mindset where I can think about what was going on in a period and think about what it means for us now, I'll read something really radical to get myself on either side of what's going on. For instance, I might read Atlas Shrugged when thinking about the 1930s and trains, because that's what it's about. Ayn Rand writes this book about the rise of of industry and how it's curtailed by crazy huge government spending. But then on the other side, I'll read something like the Communist Manifesto, right? To get myself kind of maybe not back to center, but way back on the other side to say, no, 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 Ayn Rand and the industrialists on the side are the devil. So who's really right? I don't know. But what I want to know is, is what's going on in the 1930s? And what does it mean when I see this train? Well, it's so cool. It's a it's um, a streamlined train that the only way I could describe what it actually looks like is it looks like Iron Man. It's pretty cool. I think it's called the Watson Streamline Train. It's one of the first ones they ever did that with. Really cool. You ought to look it up and Google it. But it gets me in that tinfoil hat type of mood. I reread Atlas Shrugged here recently for a different reason, to get myself in the mood of building a crazy industrial startup that can take over the world. And when I do that, quite frankly, I think it's helpful for motivation to read Atlas Shrugged. And if you're considering trying to make a industry-eating, crazy, I'll-take-over-the-world type of I'm-going-to-put-my-tinfoil hat on and put-the-world-on-my-shoulders type of startup, read Atlas Shrugged. If you want to get in a different type of mood, you should read a book called Alongside Night. It's by call a guy called Neil Schumer, I think something like that. You can find these books online, especially this one for free. Little 80 page, 90 page, 120 page attack on inflation as a tax against the people, against holders of 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 wealth. The governments can print money deface the value of it, and essentially tax everybody. It's about a kid whose dad is a really famous economist from the Austrian school, which is a really funny school of economics that I learned about in college that I kind of ascribe to. They hate mathematicians in economics. They hate mathematicians, these economists. 
if I'm wrong, let me know somewhere. But I, the way I understand it is these guys, Von Mises, they love the gold standard and they hate the mathematicization of economics. Okay. And in the book, the guy's dad, this, this kid, the main kid, his dad is an economist and the government decides that they don't like him. He's a political prisoner. They try to get out of the country. It doesn't work. He's got to use gold to get himself on the black market. He goes and lives in the underground. And I won't spoil how it ends, but it's an ode to inflation. I'll, I'll explain a little bit, too, about what happens in Atlas Shrugged. I won't give it away either. It's a young girl named Dagny Taggart. Her family, her great-grandfather, set up Taggart Transcontinental, the biggest train company in the world. Then, I think she wrote the book in the 1950s. It's based in the 1930s. And she partners up with these big, hairy industrialists like Hank Reardon, and she has these affairs with him and talks about her relationship with him as something selfish and selfish greed being really good. She really likes that. She also wrote a book called The Fountainhead. It kind of um, also describes this feeling of big strong strapping men breaking the earth with pickaxes and huge modern industrial equipment and how sexually attracted she is to them through the female main characters that she puts in the book again if you're trying to make a crazy industrial i'm going to take over the world put the world on my shoulders make one billion dollars i don't care what happens to the rest of the world type of thing read atlas shrugged but make sure to be able to bring yourself back to center. Keep the Communist Manifesto next to you, lest you put on your tinfoil hat and start doing something that people wouldn't like you to do, right? But it, 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 that's one piece of this. In this alongside night, this inflation question will get us closer to thinking about what's going on, how that train is in the 1930s. The next thing is from the Darknet Diaries, right? It's this podcast by this guy named Jack Reisider. Who knows if that's his real name or not? He has something to do with this 1930s train because he represents what's really crazy in this process, which is the advent of software, right? When you build a train or you build a plane or you build something like that, even in the early days of IBM, or before chip companies like NVIDIA, you actually had someone building the hardware with a router, right? Like a, a keyboard used to be super expensive because a machinist actually had to route the information from each key as you pressed it on the computer or whatever it was on the keyboard to tell it exactly where to go, what to do. And instead, some smart person came along and said, no, 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 wait, guys, we don't have to do that. We can just have this all-purpose piece of silicon that can take the program, take the information from that key, and you don't have to manually route it. And a bunch of people lost their jobs. They were really pissed. But this guy, Jack Reisider, he tells stories about the dark web, which I'd never really heard about before, and I think is an interesting place to kind of think about what was going on in Atlas Shrugged and in Alongside Night, you have these kinds of characters, these people who exist in the fringes of society, who try to create places where they can trade things and do things. 
that are illegal. Uh, he also, in, in the Darknet Diaries, he interviews criminals who steal Bitcoin and who hack into companies and steal things from companies. He talks about Alpha Bay, which was his Darknet uh, marketplace that got busted, and he mentions the Silk Road. The Silk Road was a Darknet marketplace that had a guy who founded it, just a regular, looked like a fraternity guy, didn't join a fraternity, from Austin, Texas, physics major, I think, there at UT Dallas, got a master's in data applied engineering or something like that at Penn State, and then went to live in Australia, didn't want to get a regular job, I think, probably, and then founded the Silk Road. And essentially, I think, like, made, was entitled to at least $1 billion then of Bitcoin, essentially now, like, $30 billion of Bitcoin, depending on the price. But he also has a factor in this story, both of these guys, just kind of showing that these trains that we built in the 1930s, though this one especially, which was way faster and way more efficient than the regular trains because it was streamlined, right? This Iron Man-looking Watson streamlined train that was red with gold that looked like the Great Gadsby kind of flu-flu girls or whatever you call them. It looks really cool and indicative of this period of time. It's also a type of innovation, and what it mean, how we how we think about innovation, and how we can actually physically think about trains now moving forward with the advent of software. And on the flip side of it, how the investment in softwares as a service and the returns that we get on that. There's a there's a great geopolitical economist called Pippa Malmgren. She wrote an interesting essay about what she calls shardware, smart hardware. Essentially what she's saying is it is a treatise of war against software companies. So she's saying, you know, how is the United States going to compete in the world if all we do is create software? And yes, software is great. But what she's saying is it's not going to help us get washing machines. And oh yeah, what she says too is washing machines suck now. They're not built like they used to be. They're built to go out after 10 years. They don't last for however long they were supposed to last before. And that, that factors too into this train. So I'll leave you with that, about that. And then I'll beg the question, what does a society look like if we're in this Atlas Shrugged type sandbox? And then what does it look like if we're in the Communist Manifesto sandbox? And, and what I mean by sandbox is like a coding environment. You can get in a sandbox and play around with things locally before you actually push them to production and break the code so that it doesn't work anymore. It's also kind of funny because essentially you could program some type of intelligence to be able to tell you what would happen, to be able to predict with all of the myriad factors that could be involved, a perfect sandbox where you could actually run a simulation like this and you could actually see what could happen and you could control for bureaucrats who steal money or you could control for corporations that destroy the environment or you could leave all of that in and you could see and you could experiment and you could take people to different 
planets to different parts underground in the world, all different types of things. You could program to see what it would actually look like. And that, that's what's that's the beauty, I think, of software, which is you can actually do that. You don't need all of the industrial equipment to be going through that. It's actually this same documentary where I saw this train. I also saw the Liberty ships that Kaiser made during World War II. Thousands of them. This ship one day was built in four hour, four days, 12 hours, and 29 minutes. I was thinking, I wouldn't want to be the guy putting that in the water. But you look at all of the capital-intensive investment that goes into building a grid or to building boats, or to building railroads. And you think about China, about the fact that they're doing that, or it seems like they're doing that, and that the United States is falling behind in infrastructure investment, and how Pippa Malmgren might be actually right. That the investment of software is, is crowding out the fact that we can't invest in hardware because of it. The capital's limited. It's a time like this when I'd want to sit down and ask Ayn Rand what she thinks about it. If she thinks that the free flow of capital into software is just the way that the market goes and that it's actually the best use of capital. And I'd like to ask Karl Marx and his buddy Ingalls and everybody else involved, but I'd like to sit down with big old Carlos and ask him, hey man, what do you think about this? What do you think about artificial intelligence? What do you think about a universal basic income? What do you think about AI? What do you think about software and shardware? What do you think about thinking really big about something like that? And in creating a sandbox in our mind, we can think about that. Now, if I were to sit down with Ayn Rand, I thought about this a lot, essentially the parameters she would put down on her software sandbox is exactly what she got at a point in the book, which is a place with no taxes, where there's no government, where everything is on the gold standard and relatively cheap because of the fact that there's no taxes. Alongside Knight kind of addresses this problem, but not so well, about roads and bridges and electricity. I remember asking a, a professor in College of Economics, you know, why is it that each state, the Oklahoma General Electric, OG&E, or whatever these companies are called, why is it that we all have still state monopolies on electricity? And what she said is, well, because the capital investment at the very beginning is so large that there's no private company who would take it on. And what I told her at that, I said, well, okay, I get it. There's a way of doing things, and that's right. And also, Lyndon B. Johnson if it wasn't for him investing in electricity in Texas, maybe no one in Texas would have ever gotten electricity. But what I'm saying is, maybe the government actually didn't allow people to invest. Maybe that's why. Because if you knew that you had those profits in perpetuity, you could get people together to be able to invest in it. It's no different than the government doing it. So I thought about that. And, and, and I think that's how Ayn Rand would answer this question. She'd say, you know, if people actually wanted electricity and roads, then people would build them because then they could sell to the people who use it. I wonder what Karl Marx would say. Next, I, I, I would want to know, and this is, this is a little bit of a jump, but it makes sense, 
You would have to describe to Ayn Rand in her little sandbox that we now have this thing called the digital nomad, which I, I don't really like that word. I'm I, I re reading a new book called The Sovereign Individual, another tinfoil hat type of book written in 1997 right before Y2K, where the authors describe a world in which we have transcended from the industrial age to the information age, that we got over our feudal lords and lived in a different age, in the industrial age, now we're getting out of the industrial age into the information age. And what does that mean? And essentially what the authors are saying is, out of that comes a person called the sovereign individual. I've never heard it described that way, but essentially what this sovereign individual person does is they're proficient in understanding the information age and earning a living from it, essentially being, a, I loved living in Brazil, and people would say, you know, are you a traficante? And traficante is just what it sounds like, right? A trafficker. And someone would say, no, 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 I'm traficante de informação. Like, I'm a, I'm a trafficker of information. And I think that's, that's a really funny, interesting way to introduce someone into thinking about what the sovereign individual actually is and how this person actually plays into what it means to see this train in the 1930s and what it means for the trains in 2100 or 2130. But essentially the sovereign individual is this, this person who makes money in what he calls the cyber economy. This is 1997. He's kind of a visionary in this sense. And maybe people were thinking about this way before I am, but he's thinking about this kind of early. And the problem that he's describing is, what does it mean when all of these so-called sovereign individuals decide that they can live wherever they want? Okay? Because before, in 1522, I lived in rural France, and I just so happened to be born on my lord's territory, and I farmed that land and paid taxes to him because that's where I was born. Then I moved to Paris, and it's 19... Well, I was going to say 1913. They were dealing with something else then. Maybe, you know, it's 1858 or something in Paris. And my family came from that place, that village with that feudal lord. And that guy lost all of his money. I, I You know, <laughs> I, I was just in Europe, and I was thinking to myself, what the hell happened to the aristocracy around here? You've got all these sweet castles. What happened to everybody who used to live in them? I would ask that question all the time. You know, they, they turned a lot of these places into museums, right? I thought, that's a stupid thing to do. Why didn't, why didn't somebody just live there? The government bought them all. You know, there, there was a castle in the center of Lisbon. They turned it into a prison. What the hell happened to these people? And what happened was that feudal lord made his money the same way that Tolstoy's characters made his money, the same way that Tolstoy made his money. Agriculture. He had a bunch of slaves, serfs, feudal, whatever you want to call them. He had a bunch of people on his land working for nothing, indentured service slaves, whatever you want to call them. Working as laborers, right? Just, just giving him taxes. And he made a crap load of money because he owned more than one estate and it was passed down 
And that's how it was all set up. And essentially, the answer to my question is being answered right now, which I didn't really even realize back then, is the Industrial Revolution killed them. Essentially, what they said is, well, yeah, you know, some people actually bought it. There was this industrialist guy who ended up importing cars and stuff in Lisbon. And yeah, he's got a great art collection, kind of learned a little bit about how art holds its value. You can kind of use it as a currency. Gulbenkian did that. Gulbenkian is this guy who fled the antecedents of the Armenian genocide. Maybe he actually fled the Armenian genocide. He fled Armenia. He was an Armenian Christian, educated at Oxford. He's the one who found oil in Iraq, right? And he is kind of a good example of what it means to see the Industrial Revolution and, and, and the process of this train actually being able to be created in the American West, Essentially, this guy Gulbenkian, had a weird first name, I don't remember it, he found, he knew that there was oil in Iraq and in Syria. He studied geology or engineering or something like that. For some reason, he knew. They called him Mr. 5%. And he essentially got BP and Shell and all of the companies that were before them in on it, had them do the deals, and then only retained 5% and made billions, right? Just made billions. And he had a playboy son who was living in Paris in the 1920s or 30s or 40s or something like that. Sometime he was living in Paris, having a great time. And he kept asking his dad, like, you know, when are you going to give me my inheritance? And it's also this interesting little switch between the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, right? What does it mean... Who do you give the money to? You have Bill Gates and these people giving this you know, giving pledge. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars, more money probably than anybody has ever had during the previous agricultural and industrial revolutions. They're the first information magnates. And essentially they've pledged to give a lot of it away, I guess, most of it, 99% of it, leaving their family with a whole bunch of money. But usually they would give all of it to their heirs. And Gulbenkian is an industrialist, maybe at late stage industrialist, maybe early stage, I don't know the history of industrialism, but a maverick, right, in and of itself, because no one has really made money in oil like this before. He's kind of the first generation of people making a whole bunch of money in his oil. And his son is asking, where the hell is my money, Dad? His son ended up making money in, um, independently somehow by doing deals with governments or whatever. He made money. But Gulbenkian shoved it to his Playboy son and gave like $500 million or something crazy worth of stuff and money to the Gulbenkian Foundation in Lisbon, which sets up a really nice art museum and super cool Zen Garden Park deal that's free on Sundays after 2 p.m. You really ought to check that out. But Gulbenkian represents the Industrial Revolution. He also kind of represents how giving your heirs wealth after that's over. It's kind of a maverick new thing that you can create for yourself. And now it begs the question, what does it mean now when Gulbenkian doesn't actually have to be where he's living to be taxed? You know, maybe maybe in the Industrial Revolution this, this problem actually did come up too. And that would be interesting to kind of take that vein and think about it because Gulbenkian wasn't living in Iraq and Syria when he was pulling the stuff out of there, right? Of course he wasn't. Maybe he did for a time. I think he also exploited Egypt and Libya and got those started. This guy found like all of Middle Eastern oil. 
And he was earning the revenue from that while living in London and in Lisbon. So I guess that's one instance of people saying, well, they can live where they want. But Gulbenkian still had to travel a lot to meetings, and he had to kind of be in places. And the the financial institutions that were set up in London made it really easy for him to manage his international accounts. And that's probably why he kept all of his money over there. Maybe Portugal was helpful, and that's why he moved eventually to Portugal, because maybe he got a better deal. But he had to move with his money in a way, or he had to be close to his money in order to watch it. But what does it mean when sovereign individuals or nomads or whatever we want to call them have considerable amounts of money and they can live where they want? The government's going to have to, to, to think, governments around the world are going to have to think about what they're going to do about that. Because, you know, it was great when Gulbenkian was living in Portugal because he gave them $500 million worth of stuff or in, in, in London, I'm sure they taxed whatever he had. So that's great. But what does it mean when nomads can live where they want? And what does it have to do with the train that's going to be built 200 years from the one that was built in the 1930s, in 2130? Where's it going to be built? Who's going to pay for it? Right? Because at that point, governments are going to have to compete in a way for tax revenue. If nomads can decide where they want to live and on what terms they want to live there, if they all call themselves sovereign individuals, it's going to be kind of hard or governments are going to have to innovate in order to get tax revenue out of people. I'll go a little bit further, too, into who this sovereign individual person actually is, right? What, what, what the authors of the sovereign individual kind of saw, I'll refer to it as a him just because that's kind of how I picture it because I, I kind of picture, oh, look, there's me being James Bond out there. I'm the sovereign individual. So, you know, if I'm a sovereign individual, what does that mean? I guess that means that I am a broker, a traficante de información. I'm somebody who can make money in the cyber economy and... The, the authors of the book describe the cyber poor and the government as being people who resent this person because, you know, like middle management who doesn't know how to use technology can't effectively kind of make money in this thing. And the tax revenues that they got from people like Gulbenkian who are propping their whole system up are harder to get their hands on. You know, you think about Apple now. Apple obviously operates under the purview of the foundation that was set up by the Industrial Revolution, but obviously, you know, has dominated the information age and, and Microsoft. God, I hate Microsoft. You know, GitHub just bought got bought out by Microsoft, and now you see all of these ads saying, oh, you know, don't open source your code because all of these really bad things could happen to you, and you see them in weird places like Reddit. And then after that, you you look up GitHub on Google uh, to get to your GitHub page, and the first thing you see is GitHub for Enterprise. It's going to stay free forever, but don't worry. GitHub for Enterprise. God, I hate my Microsoft. Anyway, Apple created something way cooler. They've dominated the information age. So is Microsoft. But what does it mean to be the sovereign individual? Essentially, the sovereign individual is somebody who can take their talents to Akron if Akron is out of the country. You know, states in the U.S. are dealing with this now, too. If I'm a tech worker from San Francisco and during the pandemic I wanted to leave San Francisco and I moved to Denver, who gets my money? California or San Fr or 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 Colorado, San Francisco or Denver? 
What if they spent 95 days in Argentina? So you get into really tricky questions about who this person is. And the sovereign individual is also somebody who is cunning in a way that might actually be considered as someone who's sly and has got a black hood on and rubbing their hands together and thinking about ways to outsmart the system. For instance, there's a, there's a really interesting little documentary about this guy on Netflix who did something really crazy. He, he ended up proving that the police department in San Francisco and Palo Alto, whoever it was, I think it was the FBI, was using this system called the Stingray 2 to pirate his cell phone connection and connect him to a crime, but it also meant that, he, that they had pirated um, the cell phone connections of people who were innocent and not under investigation. When he was arrested, actually, it's kind of interesting. He had $68,000 in cash, no ID that had his real name, fake passports that are legit, a hundred different fake identities. It's like 2005. And he was stealing tax returns, 2000 bucks, 8000 bucks, maybe 10000 bucks a pop from people and ended up getting like, I don't know, five, six million dollars in cash and then washing it through different ways online. But he was so smart about using the internet and knew that the government didn't know anything about using the internet at the time that he was so confident that he couldn't have been caught that when he was actually sentenced to jail, first off, they didn't know his name. It makes me think about how many people are out there doing this kind of stuff right now and you know just can't be caught. But they didn't know his name. He didn't tell them his name, and they didn't know his name for like a week because they rubbed his hands on the ground when he was arrested, and his fingerprints didn't work. So they didn't know who he was. He wouldn't tell them anything. And he had an internet connection that was bought through a Verizon chip under a fake name. And that was the only way that they could have got him because that's how he connected to the internet. He paid his rent through a fake name and money orders, and he covered all his bases. Apparently, just a really smart guy. And when they interviewed him, he seemed like a normal dude, but what he said was, essentially, he just stinked of this sovereign individual stuff. Like, I don't want to be a part of this state. I don't want to be a part of this thing. He's probably upset about the use of force, whatever. He didn't like it. I don't know why he had to steal. Maybe it was like his own way of telling them, putting the, giving them the finger, but he stole from the government because maybe he thought the government was stealing from him. Who knows? But he got caught, and he went to jail, actually. And while he was in jail, he he went to the law library and spent like 10 hours a day in this law library in this jail and fired his lawyer and read up everything that he could about his case and made all of these diagrams about the network connections, about how he must have gotten caught, and came to the conclusion that the only way he could have gotten caught is if the government was actively putting out a net to catch everybody's connection. And that's when he realized, and then the government gave him a plea deal, they let him out. Now he does consulting work, probably hacks, you know, says he's a white hat hacker. But essentially, he's the epitome of this person who is the sovereign individual. And I asked myself, like, why didn't this guy just get out of the country, right? I'm sure he asked himself that every day while he was in jail. The question is, why didn't he? Who knows? Because how many people are out there who have done that, who did get out of the country? And and it brings up this question that they that they talk about in The Sovereign Individual in the book that, yeah, that guy could just leave the country. And then the government doesn't have any way to tax him. 
And he probably wishes that he did do that. I wonder if he's living in the country now. He's probably not. And there would actually be no way for this guy to be able to run this type of operation, to do what he did, to be a one-man band that got his hand on that much money during the industrial age. Like, he would have actually had to build something or steal something physical. Now he can just get into the system and steal things with ones and zeros and not actually have to take physical loot or create anything in the process. Again, Pippa Malmgren is upset about this. She's upset that people aren't actually creating things that look like real GDP and smell like real GDP and that you can touch and that you can feel and that create electricity and space and get uh, Ayn Rand really excited. We don't have that with this. What do we do about that? If this guy, whatever his name, I think his name was like Riggs Maker, Briggs Maker, something like that. If you were living in the industrial age, I'm sure he's got a, a crazy through-the-roof IQ. He can solve problems. He can fix them. But maybe he actually wouldn't have done that because he wouldn't maybe have had the access to the information that so influenced his ideas to do something like that. And that the, the nuclear weapon, the hydrogen bomb of information that exploded during the information age showed this guy that he can do it, that, that there's a bunch of tools out there that can allow him to live as a sovereign individual, and that this is actually open to him. I do think mo it, it does kind of raise the question about nature versus nurture, but what would this guy's life have looked like in the industrial age? You know, he could have been a worker who ended up organizing other workers— and maybe lobbied for his wages to be increased. Or he could have maybe found a way to gain the system to get himself some capital to maybe buy up something and then make it an operation of his own and then convince a bunch of people to work for him. Essentially what, what the information age and, and this general trend has done is it has significantly reduced the amount of outside input that you need to create a profitable operation because of the difference in inputs. If I want to make a bunch of money in agriculture, I need a bunch of people or things to be able to plant and harvest and sell and eat and buy that stuff. And if I want to make money selling trains and rain, railroads and boats and planes and steel and inputs and stuff that, you know, gets you excited because you can set it on fire, these big feline giant rockets shooting into the sky, getting you super excited and looking at Ayn Rand like, oh, yeah, she definitely likes that, that kind of stuff. When you think about the industrial age, you still do need a lot of people to do that kind of stuff, right? Maybe even more than you did or just organized differently than the agricultural era. But in the age of information, you definitely need a lot less people. And that's, that brings up an interesting idea about management, right? Because we are essentially set up on management principles that came about during the industrialization of the United States automobile industry. like Henry Ford set up all of these crazy management principles that we think about. And it's really interesting now to see those management principles in play, having people try to get you back to your desk for some weird reason, right? Essentially making you a cog in this industrial machine when you're actually supposed to be a broker of information, 
or something else, right? A creator of information, or I think it's really just a broker of information, a facilitator. It's so crazy to think about what information actually is, right, too, because when you think about what money is, money used to be gold, money used to be things, money used to be commodities. Now, overwhelmingly, money is information, right? It's information in a computer that says, I am transferring value to you. You look at cryptocurrency, money is still information there. Especially people who are trading mass amounts of values as investment bankers or people who are creating tech products that get massive amounts of money. They're trading information for information, fiat information, right? So, so when we use industrial management principles to govern the world of information, you find yourself in a, in a world that has shin splints. You get growing pains that way. It also kind of makes me think that in, in order to prop up an economy that creates massive amounts of industrial wealth or whatever you want to call it, industrialness, right? Stuff, cool stuff, steel stuff, tanks, planes, cars, stuff that you can melt down and shape into a nasty statue of Ayn Rand, that decrepit old woman, right? That you either have to have what Karl Marx would say is is a bunch of government spending. Maybe Alfred Maynard Keynes is probably... Whatever John Maynard Keynes would say, maybe you just need a bunch of government spending. Or what Ayn Rand would say is like, no, you need to set up a sandbox in which capitalists can aggregate massive amounts of dirty capital and create huge phalangine objects that shoot into the sky and set themselves on fire. And you have this um, big, hairy, industrialist guy standing in front of a glass window with magma shooting everywhere and him pounding on the desk and telling Ayn Rand's character that she's not worth anything. There's a little bit of a rant. Sorry about that. But do you need more government spending or do you need a way for people to aggregate and apply their capital efficiently? But what I think is, well, hold up. We've moved into a different age. Maybe you don't need, maybe, you know, you talk to people and they say, oh, you know, um, I'm building an app, and I said, oh, yeah, what does it do? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's this new music app that does music things and analyzes your music with AI things and if statements, and it's crazy cool, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, okay, cool, yeah, what does it do? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does music stuff. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Well, what have you built? Oh, yeah, I spun up this deal, and look, okay, um, I did it in Figma, and it does some cool stuff. Oh, what are you going to do next? Oh, well, now I'm going to go to a venture capital guy and get, you know, uh, $250,000 to have somebody build it. Really? <laughs> don't do that <laughs> don't do that <laughs> and I think that that's the way that the whole system is set up right because it, it, let's say I have an idea to make uh, a way that people build cars way better right I need to go out to a bank and get a whole bunch of money and convince a whole bunch of people that this thing is going to work but this guy's pitching to build something that uses Spotify, or maybe let's just say he's trying to build something that competes with Spotify. Spotify has gotten a lot of money. They've, they've People have transferred a lot of their valuable information to Spotify, and Spotify makes a lot of money that way, or transfers a lot of their information money into their information bank accounts, and they have information because of that. But I look at this person, I say, well, you know, what, what if you just built something and rolled it out to people, and then saw if they used it? Maybe put it on Reddit. Maybe that'd be kind of funny, right? But we're thinking about 
information in, in the industrial lens. And, and what was the Depression is my question here. What was the Depression of the 1930s? What was the Roaring Twenties all about? Was that just low interest rates? Like I, I don't know what historical interest rates were in the 1920s, but I would guess like maybe interest rates were really low and government spending was really high and then it all came back to bite everybody. I don't know what urged the stock market crash of 1929, but that's the way that I see our problems. Maybe low interest rates is the only thing I can just throw out of my hat and guess. But I do, you know, you ask Karl Marx, hey, Karl, like, um, what happened in the Great Depression? Why did that happen? Well, Karl Marx would say, like, well, because of government, because of uh, greed in the 1920s and a lack of regulation. And Ayn Rand, that nasty woman, what she would say is, well, it's because the government stepped in and did all this stupid stuff and wouldn't let us allocate capital the right way. And in many ways, Atlas Shrugged is a book about her view on what the 1930s was, I think, because bad government policy in her mind sent the world into this crazy, unproductive period where people are begging on the street, no one's willing to work, no one's willing to do anything for fear of some government lawmaker trying to make you do some type of bribe. But essentially, in the information age, I think it's so much different, right? Government spending... Especially after COVID, you look at what it is. It's just the government giving money to people for them to consume physical products so the economy can kind of keep going. But there's not much in the way of, you know, you can say, oh, well, we need to invest in infrastructure. People say, why? It's like, well, we need to have roads. Why? Oh, so people can drive on the roads and they're nicer. Okay. Or we need to invest in rail because... You know, we need rail. We say, well, why do we need rail? He said, oh, well, we can make more stuff. He said, well, what kind of stuff? So do, do, do we live in an industrial age or an information age? What Pippa Malgram would say is both, right? Build smart hardware. Do that. But what I say is, man, I don't know what the government spends their money on anymore. I guess the government spends their money on their citizens to make their nice, their lives better, right? But where do they get the money to do that? Part of this, too, is about how that train in the 1930s represents, again, this dichotomy about what got us out of the Depression. Regardless of what has got into, what got the United States into the Great Depression, what got us out? What looks to me what got us out is an industrial empire created by government spending. Yes, the Hoover Dam got us out of the Great Depression. The, the, the WPA projects got us out of the Great Depression. But also industrialists like Ayn Rand would love also got us out. And World War II probably also got us out of the Great Depression because people built so much stuff. But the second part of this question is what got us out of the Great Depression? What got us back to work? The question for the information age is twofold. What is work? And who is us, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> what are we supposed to be doing? Because, you know, uh, I think that's why people call it a universal basic income is because essentially when you work in an information age and you become a traficante de información, right? What is it, as a nice little uh, Spanish deal, I'm kind of proud of that. Well, what does it mean to be back to work? In the information age. Because obviously it's easy in the industrial age, you know. It's, well, I got a job down at the factory or I opened up a factory or, you know, I'm, I'm still farming or I work in industrial farming. 
And then I went to college or something to learn either how to, to manage people to do that or to manage the, the input of information to that system. Like I maybe, you know, researched accounting to be able to, to play a role in that industrial atmosphere. But now we're in completely uncharted waters, right? It's like now we're dealing with software programs and chips that are really smart and we're building products that can think and map things out and do things more efficiently. We still do need physical products, though, and I think that's where we have to straddle this kind of transition into the industrial or into the information age. And I think it's just called like an industrial information age, maybe? It's like... Or maybe the age of smart hardware. But to answer the question about was it the was it who got who got us out of the depression? Who got everybody back to work? Was it the government? Or was it the companies? Was it both? It was probably both. Everybody did get back to work because they all went to work for the government. And then they all went to work for the military. And then they all went to work for General Electric. And Ford and, and Chevrolet and General Motors and all these people. But what does it mean when 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 COVID's over? And you have all these information workers who may or may not be out of a job. It's like you have all these people who are online teachers or online consultants. Or they build websites for people. What does that mean? getting back to work. What are they doing? And it's hard for us to gauge what they're doing and, and even tax what they're doing because it's less physical in nature, what they're creating. We can say that they're creating value because they're getting money in return, kind of like they're getting you know information, fiat money in return for what they're doing. They're also getting a lot of money from the government at this point. So, so you're wondering kind of what it means for us to get back to work. And, and and are we ever going to build a streamlined train again like that? I keep coming back to this train. Part of what I'm thinking is, is it possible for people, are, is it possible for people to get back to some different type of work? And if work doesn't look the same, then what are people going to do with the time that's free if they do have more free time? So there's some really interesting ideas that people have put out about art. About the fact that if people aren't working menial labor, and maybe they are working information jobs, maybe they're not. Maybe we live in a world, maybe Karl Marx would tell us, or maybe Alfred John, whatever his name, Maynard Keynes would say, that the profits that are um, taken off the top from the people who have all of the money in the information age can be used to prop up the society to be able to create things like art and enjoy themselves. Okay? And people can spend their money on creative things that other people have created. And essentially that the information economy has become the creator economy. Probably a bunch of different ways that you could call it. But that's one way to look at it. Ayn Rand maybe would... It takes a little bit of thinking to think about what Ayn Rand would actually say about the information boom. Because she's so sexually attracted to industry. That's the only way to put it. If you read the books, you'll completely understand what I mean. But she is so sexually attracted to heavy industry. I mean, like, heavy, heavy industry. It's almost like 
like a sloppy romance novel about U.S. industry. That's exactly what it is. But I wonder what she would think about software innovation. I think she would probably take Pippa Malmgrim's line that it is for people's I'm reading a Tom Clancy. I'm listening to a Tom Clancy book right now, and they they call it a tech weenie. You know, <laughs> some Navy guy is in his office, and he's talking about software. I think he wrote the book in like 2002, and he's essentially Tom Clancy is describing how the military has moved away from investing in hardware to investing in software for its weapon systems. And one naval officer is talking about his tech weenie. He's like, "Oh yeah, this guy's my tech weenie." And, uh, yeah, some computer company, Compact, just offered him 300 big ones last year, but I told him to hold out for half a million. And they call him a tech weenie, and it's kind of funny, and Tom Clancy kind of glorifies the software industry by saying that there's people out there in the government who don't create anything, and that software engineers create solutions that they can be paid a lot more than stupid Congress government officials who only make 130 grand, and that's actually not that very much, which actually is kind of a lot by some standards. But they don't create anything, he says. So Tom Clancy is kind of romanticizing the software developer, the information kind of creator, solutioner, developer, builder, constructor, Jesus' dad was a carpenter kind of deal. What would Ayn Rand think about it? I, you know, Pippa Malmgren definitely has gotten me in this way of thinking where I can't even get out of it to think that uh, being a software developer or an economy that invests itself completely and wholly in software solutions is the equivalent of this tech weenie. You know, he's got a lot of money, but he doesn't create those, you know, hard grit, get your hands dirty, blue collar, uh, industrial, sexually attractive solutions that you know, build things that you can see. Would Ayn Rand think that that guy is a tech weenie? Yes, yes. She would think he's a tech weenie, but she would also be really impressed, right? Especially if you took her train, because immediately when I saw that train, I thought, okay, Dagny Taggart would love to see that train, and that, because when I was reading this book, I've read it a few times now, when I read Atlas Shrine, I thought to myself, God dang, what does her train look like? And I always imagine the regular old black uh, train with the choo-choo thing on the front. But now when I saw this train, I realized what she was talking about. This whole book, Atlas Shrugged, is essentially written about that specific train and why it looked so much different from the rest of the trains that had come out and how it was such an integral part of U.S. culture and society and how it represented reconquistadoring the West and taming uh, all of the natural resources that were at our kind of grasp and how it was almost biblical and sexual and grabbing all of it and, and forming it into what we wanted. And it's all wrapped up in this train. But she would still be excited about the software part of it because she would still be excited that the way that that train looked, the reason why it was so good is because it was streamlined and because it was more efficient and because it worked better. And that makes me think that Ayn Rand would actually be excited about computer solutions, which makes me think that Pippa Malmgren is right, that Ayn Rand would take her position. Pippa Malmgren even kind of reminds me of Ayn Rand. Maybe I should reach out and tell her that. I don't know how she'd feel about it. But essentially, yes, Ayn Rand would be excited about the implications to hardware solutions with software, which she would take issue with 
Maybe not, right? I, I would say that she takes issue with SaaS products like Slack or Calendly or something. But those are actually sweet. And they save time and, and money and increase efficiency and allow people to do better work. She would definitely take issue, though, with these kind of tech weenie sissy SaaS products that kind of look like they waste money maybe like dating apps or social media platforms or selling data to make money maybe she would take issue with that right but is it possible if we were to go into some type of the first tech recession right if we're looking down the barrel of that what would it look like to get us out right does the government just teach everybody what are the wpa acts for the information recession just teach everybody how to code does India come out on the other side super on top of this? Does China come out on the other side super on top of this because they taught their people how to code, right? If we do go into some type of recession and we're in the information age, what's the advantage for the U.S.? How does it get itself out of it and remain on top? It's an interesting little question there. It, it, it also makes me think about this question about what it means to be a nation state and how it um, it used to be connected to your feudal lord, right? Which makes sense. It's connected to your feudal lord. That person, you're born there. They have kind of a right over your servitude for some indentured period or whatever you want to call it. You want to call it slavery, serfdom, indentured servitude, feudalism, whatever you want to call it, right? You're born there. You work here. You pay me. You own this pizza shop in Brooklyn. I'm the mafia Don that lives on your street. You pay me for protection or I bust your kneecaps out with a baseball bat, something like that, right? It's easy for us to think about a nation state in that way right now because what we've been taught and the management principles that organize our society are based on industrial practices and before that on agricultural practices, feudal practices. It's easy for us to see that. And what this book, The Sovereign Individual, kind of looks out and tries to think about is, well, what does it mean when you've got a whole bunch of these cyber sovereign individuals who create and traffic information products, like Calendly, who save people a whole bunch of time, or software that helps hardware work better, or connecting people around the world so that cheaper labor can do different work? Or that the best people can be working for the best companies and get paid the most. And that it's becoming increasingly less important where your desk is, where you're sitting. And 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 sometimes when you're talking with friends about this, they say, wow, oh, well, Carson, you know, it actually wouldn't work because, uh, you know, people can't um, actually be in the same time zone. It's such a pain in the butt to uh, talk with people in the same time zone. But you think about it, well... If you're making things, if you're on the maker schedule and not the manager schedule, if you're on the information schedule and not the industrial schedule, then sometimes I actually work really well together, Like, right? If I'm working on a coding project with someone who's in Lisbon, I can stay up all night when it's fun for me to code on central time, U.S. time, put that code in a... I don't know what you call GitHub, but like a version management type system where... Everything that I change, he can see, and he can roll back the history and see exactly what I changed. There's notes in it. And then I can send him some voice messages to tell him what I did. He can get in there and spend his whole morning doing it, 
And the next day, I can get in and see what he's doing from 10 a.m. to noon after I wake up, have a run, have a read, write a little bit, check what he's been doing for a couple hours, and then have a meeting with him to catch up at the end of his day and at noon in my day. And then the process kind of repeats itself. And then you have two people working in silos where you don't actually have to be working on the same time zone because you would actually be wasting a lot of time talking to each other, perhaps. So if you can actually manage what people are supposed to be doing, then you can do time zone arbitrage even. And what Tim Ferriss even um, really, I think, popularized is the fact that people can commit currency arbitrage, that you can go and live in a really cool place like Argentina and pay a lot less to do it and work abroad earning dollars. Right, The information that comes into your account is programmed in dollars or euros or something stronger than the peso down there. So what does a nation state look like in 2100? How do they have power? How do they tax people? How do they make sure what's the system going to look like when you have to decide how many days is how many days someone was in there? Because it was easy before you could just tax the physical products that somebody exported. Do you do you start to tax like code based on where it was exported? How does a nation state tax its citizens in 2100? Does it do that at all? Are there nation states that don't do that? Is it a race to the bottom? Do people lower taxes as far as they can, like Ireland, to get Google and Apple and all these companies to set up shop there? Will they be competing for digital nomads or sovereign individuals or whatever, like Portugal is? What's that going to look like? More than that, and I think kind of really pertinent to the question, what the hell is a border, right? If I, if I, like I, like I mentioned before, if I work in California... My job's in California, and I moved to Denver, but I spent 90 days in Texas visiting family, and then I got in a van and drove to Wyoming and stayed there for seven months. I obviously owe the U.S. government some money in taxes because I was here for 365 days or whatever. But what states do I pay to? What cities do I pay to? They're all fighting over it. Who the hell gets paid? You know, if, if I buy an Amazon product... And it was made and shipped in all these different places. How do you? How does Amazon pay? And the governments are freaking out about this. But what the hell is a border? It used to be a feudal border, right? I was born here, I worked here, and I died here. And this entity had the rights to take a portion of my revenue to build roads and hospitals and schools and all the things that I need to support myself and live in a nice society. But now in the information age, you have two different classes of people. You have one person who's kind of transient, who's creating a lot of wealth, perhaps, but also floating through these different places that have been propped up with money and wealth, really, that has been taken by governments from people who have paid into it, who are there or maybe not there, dead, maybe alive, maybe living there, maybe not. And then you have these kind of transient cyber sovereign individuals passing through, not necessarily dumping money back into that system, but definitely using it and living there because they like it and then leaving before they have to pay the bill. So what the hell is a border? What are they going to look like? And are, 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 are these entities, are these states, are these cities, are these nations even more than nations like the European Union, are they going to compete with each other to get 
people there to pay? How are people going to set up entities to make sure that they pay the least? What are people doing now that is kind of novel, right, to, to, to navigate their way through this? Because it seems kind of like that system in which this Briggs Mater guy who had all those fake IDs and stuff and got caught and scraped up his hands and they couldn't, they didn't figure out who he was. It was kind of like that. It was like he was doing something where the government didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what was going on, but he kind of knew what was going on. And then that's why he did that. Because he was illegal and a problem and that's why he went to jail. But does anybody even know what's going on here? I don't think any, it is. And Nation Stadium is in 2100, I can say this for a fact, is definitely fragmented and doesn't look the same as it does now, because nation statism in let's think about it this way in 1922, right, looked probably a lot the same as we see it now. Like maybe maybe with nuclear weapons and NATO and all of that stuff, it seems a little more flagrant to go out and get another country. Obviously, you know Russia is going out to get another country now, and and. Maybe so that's not proved yet, but I definitely think that when you think about revenues, what keeps governments spending on their military, what actually keeps the wheels running in a government, it's tax revenue. And then you say, okay, well, most of that tax revenue is going to come from information workers. And information workers that are managed under industrial management principles that make people be back at their desk naturally means that the people who are good at it are going to get away from that system of control and they won't be working for managers who don't understand that and they will be working in a where in a place where they can work wherever they want especially if they're the best who are they going to pay taxes to are they going to pay taxes at all to whom i don't know but it's going to be different what does ayn rand want us to think about it she wants someone to to make it mulligan's john galt's gulch Right? She likes that. I think Ayn Rand would say, like, now is our time. We can do it. We can colonize the moon. That's what Ayn Rand thinks. You know, I, I like to think about this industry kind of as like a, an Ayn Rand sandbox. Um, but you, you can't think about an Ayn Rand sandbox unless you have a John Maynard Keynes slash Karl Marx sandbox next to it. And I put them in the same sandbox, right? That might seem a little radical, but I think that our present situation of inflation and government spending and the boom and bust cycles that we see really do come from almost one guy, John Maynard Keynes, essentially saying that, listen, we need to give consumers money. Essentially, if, if you want to understand the economics of John Maynard Keynes, look at the coronavirus payments, the stimulus payments, right? Because the doctrine after 2008, maybe before that, definitely during COVID, was, all right, the U.S. economy is lagging. Why do, I don't know why we, we gauge the U.S. economy based on this weird imaginary number called GDP like it doesn't make uh, no one knows what GDP is no one knows how it's measured everybody will tell you about it what I say is like I guess stop trading stocks when your uber driver is telling you what to buy I don't know but GDP doesn't exist no one knows how to measure it the number is completely made up and 
people get really freaked out when that number contracts ever so slightly <laughs> and we measure its growth rate and that's how we decide that we're in a recession and everybody sells all of their stuff because of that number. And he's like, really funny. Like, I, I have to think about what it would be like to be an alien on Mars and, and be watching what's happening anywhere, right, in, in the United States, around the world, or the way that we interact with other nations, the way that we interact with each other, anything, right? It's funny to kind of watch it objectively like that. When GDP contracts for two consecutive quarters, we're in a recession. So right now, you know, we're in a recession. Okay, Friday, August 5th, 2022, we're in a recession. But what, why? I mean, it's just because somebody said so. Okay, yeah, we are, all right? We're, we're in a recession because somebody said so. But what John Maynard Keene says is, all right, you know, the economy needs a, uh, what do you call it, inside of an engine when you got to push a little bit of uh, fuel into the injector to make sure that everything can fire correctly. And that's giving everybody, you know, a trillion dollars worth of money, two grand each for them to spend. What does it do? Everybody just buys a bunch of stupid stuff they don't need on Amazon from China. And it's just sent all the money to China. And contributed to a crazy amount of inflation because nobody did anything for that money. They just printed it and gave it to everybody and said, oh, please buy things from people so, you know, the economy can run again. What people forgot is growth in the economy isn't buying things. It's creating things. And in my opinion, it's not about creating toys or wall chargers. Maybe that is. I mean, that's, that's still creating something. But it's definitely not about increasing spending on, you know, Amazon products buying stuff the keynesian way of measuring economic growth is how much consumers are spending and if they can't spend then the economy can't grow and if the economy can't grow then you're in recession if you're in a recession then like bad get out of the recession do whatever you can to get out of it and ayn rand really likes the idea of a recession i think i think she looks at it and she thinks this is a great opportunity for people to come together and to create really big ideas and to amalgamate capital together and to create huge solutions to fix super hard broken systems of problems but we have the added benefit of looking at this and saying well we don't even have to go out and get a hundred billion dollars worth of capital ayn rand because we don't have to build a huge steel factory we can build software <laughs> but then she would say well software to do what Software to, to, to gather people's data and sell that? Does that add value? Perhaps? Because then you can sell them more stuff, maybe? In any event, you think about this Atlas Shrugged Sandbox and what she would say, and you kind of have to put your spurs on, get your cowboy hat, and realize that we're in uncharted territory. That Ayn Rand actually can't save us now, and John Maynard Keynes, it's good that he's dead. We're on our own. And that's why this process is actually helpful and, and needs to be done and actually adds value. Because part of what we need to do, right? Einstein said it or somebody else said it that if you if you're gonna fix a solution, you should find you should take your first 19 days to define what the hell the problem is if you've got 20 days to do something. So what's a problem, right? And and I think that the problem is we are at this point where we're transferring into the information age and we're trying to put or apply 
industrial principles to solve these new problems that we've never seen before. And quite frankly, the problem is we don't know what the problems are because we've never seen them. And we definitely don't know how to solve them. And what we do have in our toolkit is a bunch of old industrial ways of solving problems. And we should be chomping at the bits. That's what Ayn Rand would say, I think. She would be chomping at the bits to find the best people to be able to form the best team, the most compact, the leanest thing that you could ever imagine and create a whole bunch of value. But uh, I, I still struggle to think what the perfect product that she would actually want to see anyway because she she created this this fictional train line called Taggart Transcontinental. And essentially, Taggart Transcontinental was great because it, enal- it enabled the oil baron uh, to go out and set up a bunch of derricks in a place that he couldn't have done it before. And to set up Hank Reardon to use his new formula of steel to be able to lay the tracks and build stronger buildings and build light airplanes and all of this crazy kind of stuff. But there's also people in this process like a guy called Midas Mulligan, who's their banker and he runs on the gold standard. And there's other people who are the professors or the lawyers who actually set up the infrastructure for this to be able to take place. And I think that that's the real role of hardware and software kind of unifying to be able to create a solution that can get us back on top or get us out of a situation we may not even be in, right? We may not even be in a huge, crazy, recessionary thing. It might all be made up in our heads. But I think the way to get out of it is to to overhaul the sh- terrible software that we use. Throw ASP.net, everything that has to do with it, in the trash can and rewrite all of it to be able to make processes more efficient. And deal with the fact that when these solutions become a lot easier, you're going to have a lot of people that don't have a job anymore. And we're going to have to retrain all of them to be able to do this kind of stuff, to be able to deal with information and do it better. I still, though, I remain optimistic that as we engage in kind of this creative destruction as new technologies come in and we utilize them and busy work is eliminated, that those people will actually, we can rely on their entrepreneurial grit to find ways to add value for themselves. I think that's what Ayn Rand would say about it. You know, even John Maynard Keynes, I think, would agree that it's, it's about the flow of incentives and even Karl Marx, you know, maybe maybe even Karl Marx would agree that at that point it's about incentives. And if you sat good old Carlos down and you told him, hey, man, this is how things have happened, I still don't know what he would do. Like, I, I wonder about the port of Los Angeles and how we could definitely utilize technology and overhaul the entire port, spend a billion dollars on it, automate the whole thing, and you don't have to, you can unload trucks and planes, I mean, excuse me, you can unload boats onto trucks, put things onto planes a lot quicker if you didn't have unions working there and kind of 
uh, worrying about safety because obviously you can get really killed. It's really dangerous to work there. They can't work all day. They go on strike sometimes. We have the technology to automate. What's holding up automation? I remember um, I, I went down to Mexico on a school trip. It was really funny. Um, I went and learned Chinese, which is crazy cool. I speak Chinese. I'm proud of that. And I, <laughs> there's a, a professor from Mexico at our university, and he was like, hey, you know, Carson, I'm taking this trip to Mexico over January, the January break. And because of the way that it costs and the credit hours that you get out of it, it's cheaper for Chinese students to go on this trip than it is for them to fly back, and they don't want to stay in Stillwater for two months. So, you know, there's 20 spots, and 13 of them are Chinese. I'd give you a scholarship, and I'd love it if you went, so you can go and kind of be, uh, bridge the gap and hang out. So I went and hung out with all these Chinese kids and a few Americans in Mexico for a month and had a really good time. One of the things that we did was we went and visited an Audi factory. It was crazy to see these huge... Komatsu or whatever they're called, robots. Sounds Japanese, but they're owned by a Chinese company. Huge, kind of crazy, picking up entire cars and doors of cars and putting them on. And then you have this kind of uh, little squads of workers going around and you know hitting things with a little rubber hammer. I don't even know what they're doing, checking to see if the hinge is in there. And before that, we had a meeting with the people, the politicians, the lawyers, and the bankers who won the project for the city of Puebla, Mexico, to get that. And I think it was like Nashville or Knoxville or some part of the U.S. was in the running for that factory. And there was another state in Mexico, and essentially they offered Audi all of the best deals. And then in return, they had this clause in there that they told us about that said, that Audi could have, does have the technology to fully automate at the factory, but they had to keep a certain percentage of actual workers there. And I knew that going in. And when I went to the factory, I was, I was, this guy was walking us around. We had to do all the safety stuff. I'm looking at this big yellow crazy arm putting a door on a thing. And all of a sudden, these two workers about 150 yards in front of us. One was chasing another guy, and they were laughing and giggling, and one of them tripped over this little uh, rolly stool that the other guy was sitting on, and they both went flying into the line, and one of them hit a car, and one of the cars almost ran over the guy. It was a crazy big accident. Everybody started yelling and getting these guys in trouble, and they kind of shooed them away because there was visitors. I remember thinking to myself really quickly, the first thing that came to mind is that robots don't do that. And and I thought to myself, you know, what do you do with the people when robots take over? I don't know. You know, some people would say you give them a universal basic income and they can live, but who gets who gets that money, right? It's easy to tax a physical plant per product that comes out of it because we understand how to do that. But how do you tax a country that flocks all of the best information workers to live there because it's nice? Right? It's like tropical countries tend to have less money perhaps because they had less development for some reason because maybe it was nicer to live there. People didn't want to build all of this stuff. Maybe people in cold countries like to write write long novels and build factories because they had to do something to get themselves out of the cold like the Germans or the Scandinavians, something like that. You know? But what if now information workers are going to move to the tropics and the tropics are going to become really rich because the information workers are going to pay taxes to them? More than likely, like 
at this point, people are going to set up companies in those rich countries and then pay less taxes to them and not pay anything to the tropical country. Who knows? But the moral of the story is there. Uh, Karl Marx doesn't want the robots to take over the factory, even if it were going to eke out a little few more basis points of efficiency. He definitely doesn't want it to happen in the ports. He looks at long-haul trucking in the United States and realizes there's a shortage of truckers because the job sucks, right? And it used to be a great job when it was a union job and people could get paid a lot of money to do it. But it was way less efficient. You know, it's like you, you read Atlas Shrugged and you see the airline board in the United States as it actually existed until 1985. I had no idea about this. In order to set an airline rate, you had to ask the airline board if it was okay, and then they tacked on 12% for tax. People were just guessing rates. So now I'm, I'm super skeptical about what rates even mean, right? If they're judged by what the market is, okay? So I'm getting into real tinfoil hat territory here. Um, but does Karl Marx want the ports to, to become automated? No. Does Ayn Rand want that? Yes. Should we automate the ports? Probably. Does that involve investing hardware and software? Of course. Is that maybe the solution that we should take to get ourselves out of this fictional recession? Yeah, probably. Okay, well, I guess that answers the question. I'll, I'll end here with a rapid fire of what we can do. First thing we can do is we can supply lithium. There's lithium in the United States. Uh, let's channel our inner Atlas Shrugged. Let's channel our inner Ayn Rand. God, she's a d wrote some dirty books. And think about lithium in the U.S. We can move it. We can pull it out of the ground. We can build it. There's Mavericks out there doing it. Galvanic Energy's doing it. Standard Lithium's doing it. It might destroy the environment, though. I mean, like, and lithium batteries are bad. Maybe there's some other way that we can supply lithium. You think about lithium, what it is, okay? What I mean when I say there's lithium here in the U.S. is there's a way for Chinese battery dominance, which is coming. They own the batteries, the, the inputs to batteries in Africa. They have a lot of it. In China, they have a lot of the, uh, not, not precious metals. Is it precious metals? No, it's not precious metals. Rare earth materials. Rare earth metals, maybe. Rare earth materials. They got a lot of it over there. You need it to get through the electrification jump, right? We're in the information age, but when you think about industry, it's less, maybe, maybe less, less, maybe it's less than less, right? It's We're moving away from fossil fuels, but we're, we're kind of realizing why we need it still. But China's in charge of electrification, so if we move that way, then they're in charge. How does the U.S. handle that? find some lithium or find another way, I guess. We have the stuff we need to, to get lithium here. We can get access to some of it in different countries. We can get really good at, at cell pack manufacturing or cathode manufacturing. We need to get better at moving it, making sure it's safe. Maybe that is the way that we do it. Maybe the fact that lithium batteries explode on airplanes is because they were made in China. You know, it's like maybe if we actually took control of creating cell man, uh, cell packs and and did something better with the process maybe we could make them safer and maybe people would pay happily the premium maybe we could get good enough at it making it in the United States that it would be cheaper okay we need to think about electrification that's the first thing next thing is we got to get out of our heads maybe i mean um this goes back to thinking about uh 
are we in a recession? I don't know. Do we have competitors in this space? Are we, you know, who am I? What am I doing? I, I think there's opportunity out there for people who see opportunity. We can move things internally on our own rail, right? We can build a railroad, and that would be cool. That would also be a nice nod to Ayn Rand. Maybe we could move our electrification stuff there, you know. Um, Elon Musk, I didn't know that he didn't start Tesla, but it, it kind of fires me up that he moved his supply chain back to the U.S., so that's cool. We can build smart hardware. We can open doors to smart people from other countries. And lastly, we can have fun and we can create art. And I, I think that maybe that's the real answer. Maybe maybe the industrial age to the information age, if it does give people more time to think, then it can give us a way to create different types of art. And that's that. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.